You ever been in an interview and you get to that dreaded part uh, where your interviewer looks at you right in the eyeballs and they say, so tell me your weaknesses. Don't you hate that? Because you're only left with two options. You're left with option one, being, being honest, right? And then you got to look at the person that you've been trying to impress for the last hour. Uh, and, and you have to look at them and you have to tell them all the things that you do terribly and all of your character flaws, all of your idiosyncrasies, all the problems uh, that, that you've dealt with your whole life that give you cause of consternation. And now you have to look at this person that may be your boss and be honest with them and tell you about the problems uh, that you deal with. Oh, that's your first option. But then you have option number two, uh, and that's to lie. Right? And that's to not say anything at all. But look at your interviewer and say, you know what, I don't have any weaknesses. And you know, it's in that moment where the interviewer looks at you and says, well, you're definitely a liar. Right? And I'll tell you your weaknesses. You're prideful. Right? You're arrogant. Right? You're self-deceived. I mean, you realize that the only two options are just not good options for you at all. Uh, but they are the expectation uh, for the person that wants to hire you. But the person that wants to put you on uh, their team uh, has an expectation that you would answer honestly uh, and be honest about yourself, and to be real uh, with the person who wants to lead you and direct you uh, in, your, in your job. You see, it's not much different when it comes to the Christian life, is it? Uh, when the one who wants to lead you, right, the God of the universe, uh, the Lord of your life, the King of kings that we just sung about, the one that we're awaiting, the one that we are expecting eagerly, uh, that he expects the same thing, that, that we're honest, that we're forthright, that we're transparent about uh, our deficiencies, our issues, the problems, the thing that separates us uh, from, from God. Because the problem is simply this, that uh, if you find admitting your deficiencies and your difficulties, if you find that difficult when it comes to your relationship with God and, and talking to Him about those things, you're going to have a problem seeing your need for Christ and salvation, right? I mean, if you can't be honest about where you stand in the presence of a holy God, right, you are deficient, inept, uh, incapable of being pleasing to God outside of Christ, right? If we can't do those things, those are the very things that are necessary for us to be in right relationship with God. First, we have to declare that he is God, that he is the Christ, that he has come to save sinners, right? Come to save people who are separated uh, from him. And so we have to do that. And if we can't first come to this reality, that we are deficient in and of ourselves, to be anything good and useful for the Lord, we can't find the actual relationship that makes us whole with the Lord, and that is Christ. Uh, because if we understand Scripture correctly, if we understand our testimonies, if we're in Christ, it is our deficiencies that are the catalysts, right? The, the, the thing that gets us to pay attention to Christ. It's our deficiencies that help us understand uh, the reality that we have to be in Christ. And it helps us understand that we need to trust in Christ because we can't trust in ourselves. And so as we look at our deficiencies, and we look at the deficiencies of the kings that we're going to see this morning, uh, what they should draw us to is not the good of the kings, not the good in you, but what it should draw us to is our deficiency and our utter reliance on Christ as a sufficient Savior. Christ as a sufficient King, and Christ as a sufficient substitute for our inabilities and incapabilities. So really what I'm saying is this is going to be the most encouraging sermon you've heard in months. And so if you will, you can go ahead and turn to Matthew. That's where we're going to root the sermon, because everything that we get out of Matthew 1, verses 6 and 7, are going to come from the historical realities that we find in the names 
in that genealogy. And if you're new with us, we are in the middle of a series called People and Promises, uh, how God has used people to get us to Jesus Christ. That is how God is using the names uh, and the lineage of Abraham to David all the way to Jesus that gives us the promised King of Kings and the promised Messiah that Scripture has told us about that gives us to the person who is sufficient uh, for us, sufficient in all things that we can trust in. So that's what we're doing this morning as we jump into Matthew 1, 6 through 7. Because what this text should do, what this genealogy should do, is turn your attention and your mind to the failures of these names. Right? Often when we look at King David and we look at King Solomon, when you teach your kiddos about King David and King Solomon, you're so often drawn to the positives, the successes, the victories in their lives. But the text of Scripture paints a completely different uh, picture of King David and King Solomon and Rehoboam, who we'll touch on briefly. Uh, scripture paints them as insufficient kings. Scripture paints them as people who didn't quite cut it when it comes to being the, the sufficient promise of God to make Israel the great nation they were supposed to be. They all fall short. And so the names in this genealogy are meant to draw our attention to a future hope of a perfect leader. And now when you read the genealogy from that lens, you see why the genealogy didn't stop at David and it didn't stop at Solomon. It had to continue going until it got to a, a person who was perfect and righteous and just and loving and holy, who could lead people in all sufficiency. Amen? All right. Well, hey, something we need to remember, Genesis 17, we have to at least remember that because it is takes us back to what we call the Abrahamic covenant, or God's promise to Abraham to do something specific in Abraham and his line, his family. And he basically says this, sum it up this way, Genesis 17, 6, I'm going to make you exceedingly fruitful. I'm going to make you into a great nation, and kings shall come from you. Very interesting in that part because there were yet no kings uh, in the people of Israel. As a matter of fact, there was no Israel uh, because it was just Abraham. And so as we see in that moment and we, we move forward throughout history, we have the patriarchs, which is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob changed, gets his name changed to Israel by God. He has his sons, and they become the tribes of Israel. And even at that moment, if you look at the governing body of Israel, it's called a theocracy, right? Theos meaning Godocracy. It's the government of God. And so God is governing the 12 tribes of Israel. But as we're moving in the genealogy, we're getting into a different dispensation. Right? We're getting into a different place where God is dealing with his people differently than they did before. We had a theocracy. Now we are going into a theocratic monarchy. Okay, The kings are monarchs, right? You understand? You know, just uh, A monarchy was big on the news recently because the monarch died over in Great Britain. Well, here we are in Scripture with a monarchy, but you can't leave out theocracy. It's a theocratic monarchy because Israel's not just being governed by a king. It's being governed by a king through God. And so we can't forget God. And this is a monarchy, but it's what we call a theocratic monarchy. And last week we briefly touched on the first monarch in Israel was King Saul, a beautiful man, a very tall man, a great man that looked like he was just going to be the guy for Israel, who we learned very, very quickly, had a lot of character flaws, had a lot of issues, wasn't the man that Israel was looking for, not the man that God had chosen. And so he rose and fell pretty quickly. And then you have Samuel, who was the last judge, right, of all the judges that we talked about in the previous weeks, who has come to anoint David as 
king. And so what we see here is this parabolic movement of Saul is coming to rise and you see him quickly failing. And as he's falling, you see King David now rising. His character exceeds Saul's in every way. You see how God is moving all the blessings from Saul as king and he's putting them on David. Because remember, the hero here isn't King David. The hero in the Bible is God. And so what you're going to notice here, it's not David who had the power to defeat Goliath. It was God's provision and God's power in David that defeated the giant. you got to remember that throughout all of this scripture because all the good things of David come directly from God. And all of the deficiencies, well, those are just David's heart and David's life. And so what you see as David is rising, God is putting all his blessings on him, and he's taking all of the blessings away from Saul in these kind of ways. Uh, David's best friend is Saul's son. David's wife is Saul's daughter. Saul's kingdom is now being transitioned to David's kingdom, right? Uh, Saul is having defeats in war. David is rising in victorious in war. All these things are showing us that God has taken his hand of blessing of kingship off of Saul and putting it in the family of Judah where it belongs, right? We're in the family of Judah throughout the genealogy. So the king could never have been a Benjaminite like Saul. It had to come from the line of Judah. So here we are. David is rising up in uh, influence, in popularity, in Israel. And then you see... uh, Uh, Saul falling down, and then Saul in battle dies, and David assumes the throne. Uh, But just so you don't think that David just gets on the throne and he gets the crown and gets the scepter and just sits down and kicks his feet back, you need to realize that uh, David didn't just sit on the throne immediately after Saul dies. As a matter of fact, uh, there is uh, the line of Saul and the family of Saul who hates David. And so uh, they are trying to conquer David, kill him, and get rid of him so the line of Saul can stay on the throne. And so David is actually only king in Judah for a little while until uh, they uh, resolve the conflict between the house of Saul and the house of David. And they do that, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, where are we at? Here we are. I'm going to get there eventually, guys. All right, yeah, uh, in the conflict of the house of Saul, then he eventually, in 2 Samuel 5, reigns over all Israel after that conflict has been resolved. And so now you see, after all these years, David is finally on the throne, although that he has been anointed king years and years prior. We now see him sitting on the throne of Israel, uh, reigning uh, as the Lord's uh, anointed one over Israel. And this is where we see things get really, really good. You remember, uh, Israel was tribes, 12 tribes. Uh, David is now, as his rise of leader, becomes the great leader that everyone rallies around. And he has a lot of really good things happening for him that God's doing in his life. Uh, for, for instance, a lot of military victories. He begins conquering the nations around him that are kind of infiltrating into Israel. Uh, there were, he finally unites the tribes under one nation. They were kind of like America back in the day. All the states were kind of their own independent things. Now we have a government, a government where uh, David's king. Uh, David also ca- conquers Jerusalem, and then he makes Jerusalem the capital. And so now we have a king, we have a nation, we have a capital. And then he takes the Ark of the Covenant, which you guys, if you know your biblical history, where the uh, Ten Commandments, where the tablets were, where the presence of the God was, or the presence of God was 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 in. And he took that Ark of the Covenant, and he put it in the capital. And so now you're seeing structure, you're seeing a nation that's on the rise, you're seeing God's blessing on Israel as it's uh, moving forward in its young life. 
David has a lot of political victory. A lot of people are, uh, he's got a pretty high rating. His, his political rating is very high. Uh, and uh, the city has a spiritual renewal. The nation has a spiritual renewal because they're following God. They're following a godly leader. And it, you can just see all the blessings of God on David. And that culminates in 2 Samuel 7. If you have your Bible with you, you can flip there. 2 Samuel chapter 7. And what we uh, title the Davidic covenant. Now, this is an important covenant. Even because you guys were singing the Davidic covenant earlier, even if you didn't know it. Uh, the reality that we have a soon returning king, that we have this everlasting king who is going to reign forever. Well, you're just quoting uh, the tenets of the Davidic covenant. And you must know that because some people in here may wonder why do we call Jesus king? Why or do we look to Jesus as a king? Where does scripture say that? Well, all of that comes from 2 Samuel 7 when David is hearing from the prophet Nathan about God's plan for the line of David. So what we see is David goes to the Lord and David says, Lord, I've been, I've been living in this great palace and you're living out there in a tabernacle. And David tries to be just this great king, says, Lord, I want to build you a house. And God looks at David and says, no, 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 you're going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. Don't you want God to tell you that? You're like, God, I want to do these things for you. God said, I'm going to build you a house. And so here in 2 Samuel 7, it's exactly what happens. As a matter of fact, uh, you can read there in verse 6. Uh, now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture. Remember, David was a, uh, David pastured, or he uh, took care of the flock. He was a shepherd uh, for his father. And God had taken him from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. I love that, right? Because we always go back to David and say, look, David conquered all those people. David did all those things. But it's God here, even in verse 9, it says, I'm the one who cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name. David wasn't making a great name. God was making him a great name. And he says this, I'm going to make you a great name like the name of the great ones on earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. Now listen to verse 11. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Here it is. When your days are fulfilled and when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Well, if you're good with Bible history, you understand that's Solomon. But there's something that happens right after this that you're, you have to think this can't be Solomon. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name. Well, Solomon did build a temple. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. See, there's, there's a problem with that last statement, isn't it? Uh, that yes, Solomon did build the tabernacle or the, the temple, uh, but Solomon died. Well, there's something that we see here in the last phrase of verse 13 that has to move our mind to something future. That we can't get from the line of David because what we have here is that God had promised that he would give a king on the throne of David forever. Now, I'll put a pen in that. Verse 14. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. That's starting to sound a little more familiar, isn't it? Uh, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. Now we're getting to a place where we're like, are you trying to tell me that Jesus sinned and God had to discipline him? I'll answer you. No. But God did get, or Jesus did get disciplined, and he did receive the stripes of men, and he did receive the punishment that you and I deserve. So in a very real way, when I'm looking at this, it's foreseeing the coming king in Christ Jesus, 
who is going to uphold the throne of the kingdom of his, of his father David forever. And God is his father, and he will be to him as a son, and he will pay for the iniquities of all men, and that he will be disciplined with the rod, and through the stripes of men we may be healed. And it says in verse 15, But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. In your house, listen to verse 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Pause right there. There's two promises and two tenets you need to pay attention to in the Davidic covenant given verse 16. And that's two things. Number one, the the Davidic kingdom and throne will be forever. There's a problem when it comes to the line of David because every single king and every single person on the world, according to Hebrews, is appointed once for man to Die. Okay, and so there's something we are seeing here in the Davidic promise that cannot come from any one of us. It has to come from someone with immortality, someone who cannot die, or someone, better yet, who has conquered death and has conquered death for us and will live eternally at the right hand of the Father. Why at the right hand of the Father? Because look at verse 16. Your kingdom will be made sure forever before me. Now there is another tenet of the Davidic covenant that says, in the kingdom and the throne of God will forever be in the presence of God the Father. Now this teaches us something else about the Davidic covenant. It means this. Whoever it is that's on the throne of David forever has to be holy and consecrated and set apart and has to sit in the presence of the Father for eternity. So it couldn't be Solomon. It couldn't be Rehoboam. It couldn't have been any of their lineages until we look at the line of Christ, until we look at the genealogy of Matthew, and we see that all of it is leading to one man, and his name is Jesus. And it's him who can eternally sit on the throne of his father David, who can eternally be in the presence of God at his right hand, judging and ruling the nations. And it's him who we sing about, the soon returning king, because we're all looking forward to the king who is returning. But you see, it turns our mind away from David, and it turns our mind where it needs to be, to God. The Bible isn't about David. First and Second Samuel isn't about David. It's about God. Why? Because we see this great... Davidic covenant here, and we see that things are looking up for Israel, don't we? Things are, really aren't, can't get much better. I mean, God's blessing is pouring out on them. Young nation rising up in, as a world power. But we have to remember who the hero of the Bible is. And the rest of Samuel, we recognize and remember that it's not David. Because we see some very popular accounts and narratives of what happened after this, and that is 2 Samuel 11, where we see David and Bathsheba. So now we see David. Uh, It says, in the summer when kings go out to war, where is David? Not at war. So we already see a problem, don't we, that the king that God has placed over Israel isn't doing kingly things. He's not leading and ruling the nation of Israel like God had commanded, yet, yet he is home, kicking back on his roof, and he looks over and he sees Bathsheba bathing on a roof. And it's there that his lust and his desires draw him to grab some of his men to go over there and to get Bathsheba. Now the problem is Bathsheba was married. And Bathsheba was married to Uriah, one of David's great soldiers. And he, you guessed it, was at battle. It was summertime. He was out uh, protecting the nation of Israel and fulfilling all the commands of God as a conquering, ruling nation. And David goes, grabs Bathsheba, uh, brings him over, and she sleeps with him, uh, and he sleeps with her, and Bathsheba gets pregnant. Now, we have the kind of king, if you're one of those who love to look up to David, who is now an adulterer, right? And he's now a thief. 
because he's stolen a wife and committed adultery. Uh, And now he does something really interesting. He goes and gets Uriah. Go get Uriah from war and and bring him here. Tell him, I want to give him some rest. Tell him, I want to give him some R&R. He can go home. Uh, He can go home with Bathsheba. You know, they can can hang out, you know. They can uh, get to know each other a little more. And, uh, you know, then they won't know that I messed up because now they're going to be having a baby. Uh, And Uriah comes back and he says, David, I could never never go home with my wife while I know my brothers are out there in battle right now, which is a conflict to David because he was doing all of that and more. Uh, And so Uriah doesn't, sleeps outside, doesn't even go in with his wife, uh, enrages David, and David's like, well, i got to figure out how to get out of this sinful situation. And so David uh, then goes and tells his commanders, take Uriah and a group of men and, and go into battle and go all the way up to the wall that you're going to conquer and then draw your soldiers back. Leave Uriah and some of the men up there that they may be killed. And so now we have David, the liar, the thief, the adulterer, and the murderer. So if we're trying to find somebody to look up to, let's find somebody else, okay? Uh, we, we have David uh, doing these gravely sinful, disastrous things uh, in his life and to the nation of Israel, defaming the name of God. And so after all these things happen, uh, the prophet Nathan, uh, prophets had a really big part in the life of the kings. They were the mouthpiece of God to the kings and to Israel throughout the uh, theocratic monarchy uh, that we're going to be studying over the next couple of weeks. And so uh, Nathan the prophet confronts David using a parable. Love it when, when God uh, uses parables in the lives of his people. Uh, and the prophet Nathan says, listen, there was a sheep uh, of a poor family, and it was their only one. And they loved it, and they cared for it, and they nurtured it. And there was a rich man who had a lot of things, a lot of sheep, all the sheep that he could ever want. Uh, and instead of spending time with his sheep, he went over and he stole the sheep of the poor family. And he took it uh, and stole it from them and did with it what he pleased. Uh, and David is very angry, enraged by the parable, and said, how could, how could someone do that? How could someone steal something that didn't belong to him of a family who didn't have much? And Nathan is, is sitting there, like, tapping his foot, waiting for David to realize, David, that was you. Like, you did that. Like, you took Bathsheba, who wasn't yours, from Uriah, when you have wives and, and everything that you could ever ask for, yet you took and stole for something that wasn't yours. And it was in that moment that David fell to his knees and cried out because he realized how sinful he was and that he was caught by the prophet and, and more so by God. And at this moment, Nathan the prophet uh, pronounces the judgment of God on David's life. And you remember that parabolic structure that I was telling you? Saul was up and down. Well, David is now the zenith, and now you're about to see his kingdom collapse under him. As a matter of fact, everything you hear about David after this is a mixed bag of nuts, and most of it isn't good. And so what we start seeing through the prophet Nathan uh, is that uh, God is going to uh, judge King David. And here's a couple of things that happened. Uh, Number one, that child that is in Bathsheba will die as a baby, will not make it. Uh, Your other son who you're going to have, his name is Amnon, uh, he's also going to be killed. Uh, And also Amnon's going to be killed because he's also wicked and he's going to sexually assault and rape your daughter, Tamar. And then because of that conflict, your other son, Absalom, isn't going to kill your, your son, Amnon. And so now Amnon's gone, your daughter's been violated and changed forever, and then Absalom's not done yet because now he's going to take over your kingdom. And he's going to try to stage a coup and take you, put you on the run. 
And so all these things you see happening after this, and David's kingdom is, is nothing like it was before, and he spends a lot of his later life on the run, uh, in, in caves and in the wilderness, uh, all the time you know, living in, in great shame of the life that he has uh, he's been living. But there is, there is a good thing, right? because we are talking about God's promises, aren't we? Right? We're talking about God's promises in the midst of the unfaithfulness of kings, and as a matter of fact, all our unfaithfulness on a day-to-day. And something uh, of a blessing does happen, that David has another child, another son with Bathsheba, and his name is Solomon. And God has a great blessing in the life of Solomon and Bathsheba in two ways. One, David has a son who lives, and who's not after his throne in a a pejorative or a militant sense, but that Solomon will end up getting the kingdom and sit on the throne of his father David, and that Bathsheba will also find her way, although in a very strange way, in the lineage of Jesus Christ, because that's what it says there in Matthew 6 and 7, isn't it? And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Did you see that? That would be Bathsheba. And so she finds herself, although in a terrible position, she finds herself by the grace of God as a great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus Christ. Isn't that, isn't that the message of grace? Isn't that the message of the goodness of God, that even in the worst of situations, uh, Bathsheba has found herself part of the family tree of Jesus Christ, which I guess I could stand on a little bit of a side uh, post, is the same way that you and I get into the family of God, by the grace of God, no matter where we are in our life, the reality is that you and I are saved by grace through faith, and it is not of our own doing. As a matter of fact, our own doing has put us in a place that needs grace and mercy, and Christ has given us that as the sufficient king, which is all this genealogy is about, because it's all the gospel is about. Remember, the gospel of Matthew is about one thing, God's salvation for his people. And so for you and I, this is a great lesson to recognize that it's our failures and our deficiencies that point us to our need for Jesus Christ. And Israel is now looking for their need of another king who will not fail. And they do not find him in King David. But you have the birth of Solomon, who is a, will be a successor of King David. Uh, and then uh, there is another spot in David's life, and you see it in Psalm 51. You should jot that down. Psalm 51 is really God's, uh, uh, David's response to God in light of his sin. And there's something you need to really pay attention to in Psalm 51. It's simply this. Uh, David had committed a lot of sin. He had committed sin against God, against Bathsheba, against Uriah, against his military, and against his nation. But there's something that he says in Psalm 51 that you need to pay attention to. And it's when he points out, who he has sinned against. And this is what David says. He says, God against you and you alone have I sinned. I want you to think about that. Against you and you alone have I sinned. Well, I just listed a whole number of groups of people and individuals that David had sinned against. But what we must understand when it comes to sin is since God has created the objective moral standards of what is good and what is not, we must realize when we have sinned, we have sinned against one person and one person alone, and that is God. Your sin has separated you from God, and a consequence of that is it also has separated you from people. But the problem that we have in our sin is a problem ultimately with God. And that's the problem that must be solved, and David does that at repenting, reaching out to God, recognizing his sin, and asking for forgiveness and restoration. 
But David's woes aren't over even up to this point because a couple other things happen. Number one, uh, right after this, uh, Sheba, a Benjaminite, a Benjaminite, one of the tribes of Israel, tries to stage a coup and also take over David's kingdom again. Like it can't get any worse for this old man at this point. Uh, he's now running for his life again as his kingdom is at, on, on the grips and on the verge of being taken over again. Uh, and then later, uh, Sheba was caught and beheaded and another coup has been settled. David is still on the throne. Uh, but one last great event that caused a lot of problems uh, and death in Israel was that in 2 Samuel 24, David takes a census. Now, that may not sound very bad because we all take censuses. We all fill out census cards because we are citizens. So in the same way, Israel, they were citizens of a theocratic monarchy. So there was a governing body, right? There was land, leaders, and laws, right? So they were a country. Uh, and so... They had to take censuses too, but they had to take censuses in, uh, in concert with the law of God. And this is something that David didn't because censuses were allowed to happen. As a matter of fact, according to uh, Exodus, uh, God uh, makes it clear, hey, you can take a census. But when you take a census, there must be a recompense. There must be a, uh, the, the word that they use is a ransom, right? You must have a ransom when you take a census. Basically this, people take census for a couple of things, for taxes and to see how many men can go to war. And so what David was really doing is saying, how can I set up my nation for my needs and my good? How can I make sure I have enough people to take over the nations that are coming against me when God continually tells him, trust in me, trust in the Lord. Don't trust in chariots, don't trust in armies, trust in me. And David, instead, trusts in himself, tries to figure out how he can make better plans as a king, and he doesn't at all create a ransom. He doesn't create sacrifices. And because of that, you're going to see the consequences for that. Right after that, and you see it in Psalm, uh, 2 Samuel 24, uh, God comes to David and says, listen, they've got three options since you've sinned against me. Uh, either I'm going to put you at flight and you're going to be running away from people for a number of months. I'm going to give you pestilence or I'm going to give you a barren land uh, and I'm going to put you guys in desolation for a year. And uh, God, uh, David looks at God and says, hey, uh, I would rather be put in your hands than the hands of my enemy. And so because of that, uh, God gives a pestilence to the land because David decided to trust in himself and not God and break the law of Exodus that says that you should take a census in a certain way. And here's what happens. A pestilence on the land, 70,000 men die. It's interesting, right? He wants to know how many mighty men, how many warriors he has. And then right after that, 70,000 men at least die. Uh, and then an angel of the Lord goes to the threshing floor, which is be interesting to note. The threshing floor is then where the temple will be built when Solomon uh, becomes king. This threshing floor at the top of the city of David at the time is where the temple will be. And so David goes to this threshing floor, a place where they thrust out the wheat for the harvest, the place where they did work. And uh, he meets the owner of this uh, threshing floor, Ornan, according to 1 Corinthians 21, or Arana, according to 2 Samuel 24, same person, two names. Uh, and basically David goes up to Arana and he says, hey, listen, I want to buy this. I want to buy this place from you. I need it because I need to go make the ransom that Exodus taught me to. I've got to, we've got to sacrifice the way that God told us to do whenever we take a census because it's not about us. It's about God, and I've got to do what God is telling me to do. And uh, Arana or not actually says, uh, no, let me give it to you. If this is what God wants, let me give it to you. And I want you to notice something David says uh, during this when Arana or not was trying to give him 
the threshing floor. Uh, the king said to him, No, I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. See, now that's a principle of stewardship and sacrifice, whether it's sacrificial giving, sacrificing your time, or sacrificing for the, for the Lord. Uh, it's important for us to recognize all of, God, all of David's deficiencies, all of his problems, he still understood the principle that he is not going to do anything that doesn't cost him anything. He's not going to serve the Lord. He's not going to do anything for God that didn't cost him anything. And so many times in our own lives, that's exactly how we serve God. And that's exactly how we give to God. We give to God out of the overflow and not out of the sacrifice. Right? We give God the extra time in our schedule, not the actual time that we use to be productive. Everything that we do in our lives, we give God the overflow, the extras off the top. When uh, David, even in all of his sin and all of his problems, understood that I am not going to do anything for the Lord that didn't cost me anything. And so it's important that as we live for the Lord, as we're doing the Lord's work, that we understand that it is the kind of work that comes with sacrifice. And let us not do anything for the Lord that didn't cost us anything. It's another sidebar. Because the reality is, right after this happened, he, he buys the threshing floor. They offer the sacrifices, the burnt offering and the peace offering. And immediately, the, do- the Lord responded to the plea and the plague was averted. Right? Again, God's promises, right? God promised, he, God bought, promised the blessing and the curse. He promised the blessing, that if you'll walk in my ways, I will bless you, I'll make your nation great. And if you will not, then I'm also going to curse you. And in that same way, uh, the pestilence came upon the land, uh, which should remind us of God's faithfulness to his promise. And sometimes we're not ones to think too much about uh, the Old Testament curses as the fulfillment of God's promise, which is what they are exactly. The reality is if Uh, Israel obeyed or disobeyed, there were consequences because that's what God had promised. In the New Testament, although we're not under the covenant of of blessings and curses, we are under a new covenant. The new covenant that also has promises of blessing and a promise of curse. Now pay attention because this is important for us to know. One, the covenant of blessing is for all those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no longer no condemnation. Right? That is the blessing. All the promises in Christ are yes and amen. Those are such good promises that are faithful and that will be irrevocable. But there is also the promise of condemnation for all those who are outside of Christ, not in the covenant people of God. And that same promise that is irrevocable is all of those outside of Christ will perish and be eternally separated from God. That is a promise. Just as irrevocable of the blessings of God in our life is as irrevocable as the promise of condemnation for those who don't know Christ. Which is why at our church, and I hope every faithful church, we preach the whole gospel. We preach the gospel that Christ has come to save sinners. Christ has come to redeem the lost. And Christ desires that none shall perish, but all come to the knowledge of God. But for those who don't, and those who trust in themselves, and those who trust in chariots and horses, and their own flesh, and their own abilities, they will be separated from God for eternity as a punishment and as a just reward for their works. It's the whole promise, the whole revocable promises of God. And we must trust in Christ. It's a long time to get to point number one. But if there's one thing that we need to learn from David, I hope it's this, that you should get real about your deficiencies, right? Get real about your deficiencies. I think my whole life, as as I've been a Christian and I listen to sermons about King David, it's always about how King David was noble and how he was great and how he was a good warrior and how uh, he he was all these things. And then you read the text of Scripture and you notice something about David and that said he was flawed and deficient and incapable and unable to be the promised king 
that God needed on the throne of Israel. And that God had to provide for himself a king, and it wasn't David. And so, honestly, if David's the best man that we can imitate in the world, we're in trouble, aren't we? The best we can be is a liar, an adulterer, a murderer, and a thief. But the good news is that we have the rest of the genealogy that ends with the king of kings and the lord of lords, the king of peace and the king of righteousness and the king of justice and the king of love. There is one person in scripture that is worthy of us imitating wholesale every single day of our lives and his name is Jesus. And he's the king and he sits on the throne of his father David. But nonetheless, even in the scripture, the failure of King David points us to the progeny of David and that is Solomon. And Solomon comes up uh, most prominently in 1 Kings 1 through 11. Uh, and just like uh, there's a, par- a parabola in the life of Saul and the life of David, we see the same thing in the life of Solomon. As we look at Solomon's life, uh, we talk a lot about the greatness of Solomon, don't we? The richest man, right? The, most, uh, the, the man of much glory and many great things. He does a lot of good things even in the nation of Israel. 1 Kings 3 talks about how God uh, comes to Solomon and Solomon asks God for wisdom. He doesn't ask for wealth. He doesn't ask for glory and honor. He asks that God would give him a heart of understanding and wisdom to govern God's people. Now that's humble. That's humility. That's the necessity to know the, his responsibility and stewardship before a holy God. And so God says, as a matter of fact, since you didn't ask for riches and honor, I will give you wisdom, riches, and honor with one stipulation, that you will walk in my ways. And so God gave him all those blessings. And Solomon brought order to Israel. Of course, after the the death of King David, there was a little bit of chaos there in the nation. And Solomon brought order to Israel. Uh, 1 Kings 4 explains a whole lot of the life of Solomon as the king. Uh, And... uh, Solomon actually expanded the borders of Israel to the lines of the promise of Abraham, which is a big deal. That's a fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise that Solomon, as a steward of God, as a monarch under the theocracy of God, actually expands the land to the allotments and to the borders that was originally promised to his great-great-great-great-grandfather Abraham. And so we see Solomon bringing Israel to this zenith, this pinnacle moment where everyone says, this is it. This is all the promises of God. This is what God has had in store for us. Uh, And he increased in honor and fame throughout the whole world. Chief among Solomon's accomplishments, after his father had taken the tribes, made them one nation, gave them a capital, uh, and got a lot of the resources and material needed to build the temple, Solomon then constructs the temple. And he takes the temple, builds it, uh, does a commissioning ceremony, and the presence of God is then dwelling with the people. Now think about this for a moment. In the history of Israel, God hasn't been dwelling with his people permanently. It's been in a tent. God had last dwelt with his people permanently in the Garden of Eden. He has now built the temple, which when you build the veil and the temple curtain, what is on the temple curtain? Cherubim, the same things that were guarding the gates of Eden. What else is on it? Fruit trees, the same kind of trees that were there in the Garden of Eden. And so to Israel and to all the people watching, the success of Israel was an Edenic time period. Was This must be all of the promises of God fulfilled, and this is exactly the way the world's going to be for forever. This is the promises of God to us, all of these great things. But we remember that the hero of the Bible isn't Solomon. And then we see in 1 Kings chapters 10 and 11, Solomon had a lot of deficiencies. As a matter of fact, instead of trusting in God, he trusted in chariots. And so King Solomon had many horses. 
many chariots. He stored for himself things that God said not to, and we'll get to that in a moment. Solomon had many, many wives that God had said, the king shall not have many wives, lest the wives turn his heart away and, put, and take them after idols. God also told the kings of Israel not to acquire for themselves much silver and gold because they'll be self-reliant and not reliant on God. You see, God did promise riches and honor and wisdom and glory to Solomon, but it was upon the stipulation that Solomon would walk in the ways of God. And Solomon turned away from God. As a matter of fact, we see this in Deuteronomy 17. If you can get there quickly, you should turn there. See this, this is important. In the life of... In the life of Israel. Deuteronomy 17. See, years before there was ever a king in Israel, God had already set up laws for the kings in the land that will come. And this is what God says. When you come to the land that your Lord, your God, is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it, you got to remember, sometimes you're so keen to think this is just 20 or 30 years down the road. Deuteronomy was hundreds of years, hundreds and hundreds of years before Israel, before the nation. And so this is God preparing hundreds, centuries beforehand what would happen in Israel. And this is what, this is what it says. I will set a king, when you say you want to set a king over you, like all the nations that are around you, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother's. Only he must not acquire, listen, many horses for himself, or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. You bought horses in that time, it was in Egypt, and the last place that Israel needed to be is in the hands of Egypt where they had come out of in the Exodus. So God said, no horses. You don't need war horses. You trust in me. Verse 17. And he, the king, shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away from God, nor shall he acquire himself excessive silver and gold. Now, we say, well, how did Solomon know that? This is hundreds and hundreds of years before. We'll keep reading. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. You see, it's not in ignorance that Solomon did these things. It was under full awareness that he was breaking the laws of God, that he wasn't the king that was going to be on the throne everlasting, that he was deficient. And although God had done so many great things like God does in our lives, we're still not faithful, that we still are deficient, that we're still not capable of fulfilling the laws of God. And we have here Solomon doing the very things that the laws to the king said you must not do. And therefore, 1 Kings 11, uh, God says this to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant or my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you, and I will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David your father, that promise that I made to your father, for, his, for that sake, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son, poor Rehoboam. And however, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son, for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I've chosen. So that already foreshadows the, the southern and or northern kingdom split that we're going to start talking about next week. We already see that unfolding because of the sin 
of Solomon. But for the rest of Solomon's years, uh, nothing happens in, in that regard because God had made a promise that he wouldn't take the nation out of the hands of Solomon. So Solomon reigns for 40 years in Israel, just like his father David, and dies uh, as an old man with a lot of uh, regrets that he didn't trust in the Lord. Now, uh, his son Rehoboam then uh, ascends to the throne. And here's a problem with Rehoboam. He does something else that Deuteronomy teaches us the kings not to do. Uh, he does something uh, that you read after that. Let me find it real quick. I didn't think I was going to say it, but here we are. Uh, look at verse 20. Uh, yeah, look at verse 20 in Deuteronomy 17 if you're still there. You see, Solomon had broken all the laws above that. And there's something that, that Rehoboam is about to do to break the laws of God. It says this, that he should keep all the words of the law and he should live by them. Look at verse 20. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from these commandments. So there's something that Rehoboam does. Because he leads upon his own power and his own good, uh, his heart does rise above his brothers. And as he's given the throne to administer God's reign to Israel, this is what he does. So in 1 Kings 12, you read it uh, simply this. After the reign of Solomon, Rehoboam ascends the throne and uh, the people of Israel come to Rehoboam and they say, listen, Rehoboam, if you will lighten the load on us, your father drove us hard and he whipped us with whips and he was a hard, he was a hard king who required us to do very hard things. And if you will just lighten our load, we're your brother, you're, we're our kinsmen, we're one nation. And if you will just lighten our loads, we'll serve you forever. And so Rehoboam goes and he meets with two groups. First, a group of elders who uh, actually gave counsel to his father Solomon. And these old men said, listen, Rehoboam, this is a very easy decision. If you would just lighten their load a little bit, they're going to be faithful to you for as long as you serve. And then, you know, his buddies, you know, those young people, uh, <laughs> talked, got together and they said, listen, here's what you really should do. You should tell him... My pinky is stronger than my father's whole thigh. And if you think he was hard on you, I'm going to be a lot harder. He used whips. I'm going to use scorpions to discipline you. Uh, and that's the counsel that Rehoboam listened to. Went and told Israel, I'm going to make your life way worse than my father ever did. And it was from that moment that you see the kingdom splitting uh, and the people leave Rehoboam and actually go to a servant of Solomon, Jeroboam. And so now, uh, next couple of weeks, as we look, we'll see... Uh, the split of the kingdom of Jeroboam and Rehoboam. But really what we need to pay attention to is how Rehoboam and Solomon did something antithetical to Scripture, and that is they made it about themselves. That is, they focused so much on the earthly things and earthly treasures and the pleasures of their life that they didn't invest in eternal affairs. And that's point number two on your outline if you're taking notes. I want you to write this down. You need to invest in eternal affairs. You would think as kings of Israel, the easiest thing for a king of Israel to do is invest in eternal affairs. I mean, as a matter of fact, I mean, it's Israel, the king, and then God. I mean, they're, they're, I mean, you don't have anybody over you but God. Everything about your life and your perception should be about eternity. But yet these kings made it all about themselves, all about how they could be pleased and how they could do everything that they, they wanted to do. And they wouldn't invest in eternal things because they were too busy investing in gold Glory and girls, as some theologians would call it. And some people need to hear that in here right now, right? We need to make sure that we're not investing in the things that are temporary, but we're investing in things that are eternal, of eternal value, of eternal weight. Uh, I do believe, and as a matter of fact, I do know, because Solomon says as much in his, uh, you could call it his memoirs, as right before he dies, he writes uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. 
And in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, this is what Solomon says as he reflects back on his life, on his failed, flawed life. He says this, Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, and my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. That should be a verse you preach to yourself every month, maybe every day. It's a verse you need to open up to your kiddos when you're raising them, when they're trying to have their best life now, they're trying to make everything good for themselves. We need to go to this. At the end of Solomon, the greatest, the richest, right? I mean, if you're in here and you're like, I just want a spouse, he had all the spouses that he could have asked for, right? He had all the money that a man could ever want, right? He had all the horses. You want horses? He had lots of them, right? Everything that you would ever want, he had, and he looks and he says, all is vanity. All is striving after the wind, and there's nothing to be gained of all these things, What it should teach you and I is investing in temporary things. The things that our eyes are down here aren't worth it. They're not worth it when it's compared to the eternal glory that is going to be revealed to us at the coming of Christ. One of the biggest problems in our lives as Christians is we're too busy. We have blinders on the top of our eyebrows that don't let us look above above right here, above right now. And the reality of the Christian life is our life must be lived looking up and not down. The way that we invest ought to be investing in the things up and the things not down. Colossians says it perfectly when it tells us that we need to be living for there and not here. That doesn't mean that we misappropriate our responsibilities here. As a matter of fact, it means that we're good stewards of the things here in light of eternity. And that we steward things here that would lead to eternal rewards, eternal benefits, and eternal consequences for people who interact with you on a day-to-day basis. Because people who interacted with Solomon and Rehoboam we're left to believe that everything you could have is right here. But when we look at the Christian, when people look at your life and they look at what you're doing, they look at what you're invested in, they could say there must be more to life than here. When they look at your life, they must realize that there's way more to life than what is in the here and now. As a matter of fact, Solomon says this at the end of that book, Ecclesiastes. Here's the end of the matter. You want to know what to do at the end of this? All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, and with every secret thing, whether good or evil, all, everything that we do, will be brought into judgment in the presence of God. And so when it comes to investing in eternal affairs, uh, first and foremost, if you're in here, the first eternal affair that you can address is called your salvation. Right? It's your personal investment in eternity, and it's the reality that you have to respond to the gracious gift of God in Christ the redemption of your soul through turning from your sin and chasing after the temporary things in life, for trusting in yourself, for not admitting to the deficiencies that you have. I mean, it's investing right now in your eternal life. That you too can have eternal life in Christ through turning from your sins and placing your trust in Christ. But if you're a Christian in here, it's, it's about kingdom advancement. It's about how much are we saving for the boat and for the house? How much are we saving... For the kids, I said it, I know. And how much are we investing in the kingdom of God? I'm talking about your money, I'm talking about your time, I'm talking about your heart. Because Jesus says it very clearly, uh, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So you even know it. Okay? Where you invest your things in your life, that's where your heart is. And so many of us say our heart is God, our heart is with God. I mean, that's what we say about King David. Even God says it. At least we can say there's a redeemable thing about King David in his life is he had a heart after the Lord. 
And we like to say the same things about ourselves, but when it comes to what we look at, what we invest in, what our checkbooks say, what our calendar says, it says that we invest a lot more in the here than in the there. And that my heart is much more invested in my own desires and my own pleasures and my own things down here than a heart after God. We need to be investing in eternal affairs. As a matter of fact, this is what the perfect king had in mind. Because as he came to earth, as he lived his life, and this is exactly what he said when it comes to eternal affairs. Matthew 6, he, he does the, he, Jesus talks about the Lord's Prayer. And he says, here's how you ought to pray. You want to talk about what you should focus on, here's what you should focus on. He says this, our Father in heaven. He's, he already turned his eyes up. Did you notice that? It wasn't about here. His first words weren't, God, I sure need you to do some things for me today. It was our Father in heaven. God, you're there, I'm here. Your kingdom. And he says this, hallowed be your name. God, you are holy. And he says this, your kingdom come. He said, you know what I want down here? What's up there? What's up there I want brought down here? I want your kingdom. And here's also what he wants. Your will. I don't want my will. God, I want your will. And I want it right here on earth as it is in heaven. I mean, everything about Christ as he came to be the perfect sacrifice, the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, the perfect king, all those things that Christ did, he came down and he had one track mind and it was on eternity the whole time. People tried to get his mind on other things and he made it about eternity. When it came to the suffering of his own life, he says, God, not my will but yours. When it came to everything that he did as the perfect ruler, he said, I'm on eternity. I'm on eternal time. I'm not on, I'm not on temporary time. But so many times in our life, we invest so much on the here and now because our blinders are here and we can only see, we can only see to here to there. We don't realize the implications that are eternal. And the way that God has given you, just like he gave Solomon and Rehoboam and King David a stewardship over the kingdom of Israel, God has given you and I a stewardship over whatever he has given you to use for him. And just like the kings who have failed, let it be a lesson to us that we too can take what God has given us and use it for ourselves. But we can also read the scriptures, have the law here, have the, have the, great, the, the message of grace here, and it tells us exactly how to use our life, our time, our finances, our children, our marriages, all for eternal purposes. You see, the failures of these three kings and the many that we're going to cover in the next couple of weeks, they're meant to point us to Christ. They're meant to point us to a future hope that, that is a hope that is both past, present, and future for us because it's a hope in the past because it's something that's already happened. It's a present hope because he's here in the spirit, we have Christ. And he's, it's an eternal future hope because he is yet to come his second time. He came as a savior. He's coming back as a Lord of lords. And we can see that. And it's not just something that we conjured up as Christians over the last couple of hundred years. As a matter of fact, just uh, what is about a hundred years after this, there's a prophet who comes up in the nation of Israel. His name is Isaiah. And Isaiah is also looking for this future king. They're also saying Rehoboam failed, uh, Solomon failed, David failed, Hezekiah failed, Asus failed. All of these kings failed. And you have now Isaiah in chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, something you're familiar with that you read every Christmas. Isaiah was looking forward to a king that was to come when he says this, For to us a child is born, an heir to the throne. To us a son is given. And we talk about the government, the failing government of Israel that you're going to notice explicitly in the next couple of weeks. And he says, This government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. See, a couple of these things could be kings. Wonderful Counselor, I'm sure there's some wonderful counselors out there, but we don't have any mighty gods out there but one. Everlasting Father, Immortal, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of the peace, there will be no end. 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. See, it's an immortal promise. It's a king that is not alive, but yet it's a king who lived and died and was resurrected and will perish no more. See, that's the hope and the promise that not only you and I have as Christians, but even Orthodox Jews right now who look at the law and they see enough in the Old Testament, in the law, in the Torah, to say there is a Messiah to come. The goodness of the mercy of God is we have that Messiah who has come to first deal with sin and will then come to deal with judgment. And forevermore. It leads us to this as your final point. Because of this, because this is the hope that we have, we need to eagerly await the coming of our King. We need to eagerly await the coming of our King. Of our king. And that is the whole purpose of the genealogy and the Gospel of Matthew. Remember, the whole Gospel of Matthew is about how God redeems his people and how God has delivered his people. That's what it's all about. There's so many references to the Exodus, to the throne of David, because all those things were real timeline events that talked about how God delivered his people. And you see it all throughout the book of Matthew because the Apostle Matthew is just trying to let people say, understand, Christ is coming back. You can await. A king because he's coming. The whole purpose of the genealogy was to show us that the king is coming. That's why we went through the kingly line. That's what we're doing right now in this whole series. Shows us from this guy to this guy to the patriarchs to the kings. right From the exodus to the kings. Even to the divided kingdom. To the exile. To the intertestamental period. You waited all these years. You waited a thousand years. And here's, here he is born in Bethlehem of Judea. And he will come and he will reign. Matthew 24, one more verse, Matthew 24. Matthew 24, 36. We talk about waiting for the return of Christ, soon returning king that we've sung about this morning. It says this in Matthew 24, verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, that is the coming of Christ, the coming of our King, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Let's pray. God, as we do eagerly await your coming, and I pray that it is the genuine disposition of every redeemed person in this room, that we are eagerly awaiting your return. And that does mean that the way that we live our lives, the way that we invest in our relationships, the way that we spend our money, when I look at my calendar this week, that does mean all those things look in a way that anticipates the coming, the soon returning King. And I pray, God, for those who aren't there, that don't, don't have that life, that don't look forward to those eternal things, God, that they understand, just like the kings did, that we are deficient, that we are insufficient uh, in and of ourselves, and that Christ has come to be the sufficient king, God, to be uh, the everlasting king, the king uh, that, that you have provided. 
that would be our perfect substitute, that not just a perfect king, but a perfect prophet, God, and a perfect Lord, a perfect substitute for our own sin. And God, that is my deepest prayer that even in this room, God, that people would see that their own deficiencies separate them from you and that your promise of the Davidic king is that he will be on his throne and he will be in your presence. God, and if we want to be in that presence, we want to be in your holy presence, it must be through the name of Jesus Christ. And I pray that we would understand that. I pray that even the most devout, mature Christian in this room would be living for that, that they may not be confusing to other people, that when people look at their life, they may uh, look and, and wonder and ask themselves eternal questions of consequence. So God, help us, even as we continue in worshiping to you, God, let us worship you in spirit and truth as we are eagerly awaiting your coming. We pray it in Christ's name, amen.